You're listening to a Dulahan Productions podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Born on August 23rd, 1943, in the big city of San Antonio, Texas, was a monster police described as a killing machine that preyed upon women in various states. He even had the audacity to appear on a TV show called The Dating Game in the midst of his killing spree, earning him the nickname The Dating Game Killer. Today, we will be looking at the life and murders of Rodney James Alcala. This is Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Strickland, and join with me as always, the man that pours his milk before his cereal, Jason Sparks. Jason, how you, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you, Hunter? I'm doing pretty good. What's the cereal for today? Uh, man, I, I'm I'm sick with the life kick, man. I I got that that chocolate dipped flakes right now, and like I am messing with it hardcore. Hey, man, that sounds pretty good. I'm just going to stick with my cinnamon toast crunch, though. I got to keep keep to the what's normal for me and what's been the go-to for all these years. So I just got to stay to that. Keep the sugar high going, baby. A hundred percent. I might have to give your that cereal t- a tr- uh, try or whatnot, but just going to have to stick with cinnamon toast crunch for now. It's healthy, and you get that sugar kick. Now that is intriguing, but uh, nah, nah, just got to stick with cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> Just got to stick to it. All right. So, like I said, we're going to be talking about Rodney Alcala. He was born Rodrigo Jaquez Alcala Bucar to a Mexican-American couple, Raul and Anna Marie. He also had two sisters. When Rodney was around eight years old, his family, while still living in San Antonio, uh, his dad one day did come home and decide that they would move to Mexico. However, Three years into their stay in Mexico, Raul would abandon the family, which led to Anna Marie moving her and the children back to the United States, specifically Los Angeles. So, Jason, I just want to stop right there and point out, you can already tell that's a pretty traumatic event that happened in Rodney's life as his father just, at one, he has the family moved to Mexico, which is pretty unfamiliar to his children because they were born in the United States. But then three years later, he leaves them. Yeah, it's terrible to see, you know, Rodney is now essentially the man of the house. You know, he's living with his mother and his two sisters. And really, I'm sure he's got to essentially pick up, you know, some of the work, some of what his dad had left off as the man of the house. And like you said, it's a very traumatic experience for a young man to grow up fatherless and also to know that your father chose to leave you. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's 11 years old. He's pretty, like, he's in that stage where he's developed a, a little bit more, like, cognitively. So he knows exactly what's going on. And just to see one day his dad's there and the next day he's gone and chooses not to be there, that's had to have messed him up, especially as we'll see what happens to him later on in life. That had to have been a catalyst in some point, in my opinion. Absolutely. He's, at, like you said, he's 11 years old. He's already built up this cognitive identity and is is trying to just differentiate what is right and wrong and now seeing the father figure he has walk out on him it's going to just completely demoralize his identity of what is right and wrong that i took the words right out of my mouth it's 
it's always got to be hard, especially with just losing a parent figure, especially a father like that, because that's the one who's supposed to be disciplining you and uh, rearing you to um, basically be a good uh, part of society. And now that's completely out of his life. It had to have messed him up. Absolutely. When Rodney was 17 in 1961, he would join the U.S. military and specifically the Army as a clerk. However, he would eventually go AWOL after a nervous breakdown, and he made his way back to his mom's house. So you can already see here, Jason, he's tried to get in the military, maybe try to get some discipline in his life due to the lack of it. And it doesn't specify how long this happened whenever he did go AWOL, but I'm going to assume it wasn't too long after he was in there and he already just couldn't handle it because he had this nervous break breakdown and decided to go back home. And, and I agree, you know, he, as you stated, he's trying to get some discipline in his life, be around other men who are able to, to teach him what manhood is like, but through the traumatic events that he has already faced at a young age, his mental capacity is already so damaged due to his father leaving him that he's just un able to deal with the stress and the the hardship that is the united states military that's pretty good points right there too it's just i don't know it's just it's very hard to tell like what's going on obviously i don't know it's just interesting to see that that all this happened it's just unfortunate to see that too what happened is they were end up able to get him back and they brought him to a psychiatrist and that is where he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And due to this, he was able to be discharged under medical terms. So you can see there, he does have some mental issues right there. At least someone caught it. Granted, he is 17 at the time when they caught it, but at least it was now before later on. So you can already see there, he does have some mental issues right there. Yeah, and, and you're happy in an extent to see the fact that the military did do their due diligence in undergoing a psych evaluation of Rodney Alcala, you know, to understand is there an issue that he is facing? And they were able to discover that, yes, in fact, he is. He is suffering from multi-personality disorder. That is a probable cause to uh, honorably discharge him from the military. But that is, in, in my understanding of Ronnie Alcala, that's as far as it goes, that they were able to say that, yes, he is unfit to continue to serve in the United States military. But yeah. they are not putting forth the effort to get him treatment for his disability. Very good point right there. They weren't able to do that because also was also mentioned in the psych uh, um, the diagnosis, too, was that he also suffered from narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, along with several other disorders as well. So they discovered that he has not only just, I mean, he has multiple disorders within him, but they didn't give him treatment. They just decided we'll just discharge him and let him go back out of society and he can figure it out that way. Yeah, and, and, you, and you hate to see that, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's so prominent that Yes, he did undergo the psych evaluation, and it was discovered that he had these disorders. But that, as, as I said, that's the extent of it. He is getting no help. He is getting no support uh, to help him get through his disorders. Exactly. And 
I know that usually, and don't quote me on this, I haven't ever been through military training or anything. I know they're very rigorous in their selection process, so maybe that had to play into us. Because I know, like, one, people with asthma, which you can't really treat that, but people with asthma automatically deny, like, they can't join. Maybe that's just part of their training is if you have any of these disorders, no, you're just, you're just not fit for battle. Same time, though, they could at least... I don't know, set him up with someone that could potentially help him. Yeah, and, and the fact of it could be so much of that extent that the United States is just coming off a victory of the Korean War, and the Cold War is, is starting to really take precipice there in the 60s, and Vietnam is about to kick off that instead of focusing their resources on getting their soldiers help they're worried about keeping able-bodied soldiers who would be able to go fight in a future war yeah good point right there that that would make a lot of sense and actually what happened was after that ronnie was discharged from the military he would attend university at ucla where he would graduate with a fine arts degree in 1968 it was also in 1968 that Rodney committed his first crime, which occurred on September 25th, 1968, when he lured an eight-year-old girl, Tali Shapiro, into his apartment. A passerby saw what Rodney was doing and called the police, but when they arrived, Tali was brutally beaten and raped. Had it not been for the passerby's tip, Tali would have been Rodney's first murder victim. Police were able to catch up to him. Rodney had fled his apartment before they could get there. That's when he moved to New York City under an alias named John Berger. And it was actually there that he studied under film director Ron uh, Roman Polanski. Now, Jason, I think I may have asked you one time, do you know who Roman Polanski is? I do. Are you like he directed Rosemary's Baby. He's also the former husband of, well, now her name's John, uh, Sharon Tate, yes. Yep. He is the former husband of Sharon Tate, which we know what happened with Sharon Tate, don't we? Absolutely. In the fact of how much malice and murder has uh, apparently reared its head in this man's lifetime. Oh, yeah. And actually, Roman was accused of sexual, uh, no, of rape of a underage woman as well. Underage woman. Underage girl as well. And he has fled to Europe and hasn't been back to the United States since. So that's what also makes this pretty fascinating that this rodney who just committed this brutal crime against an eight-year-old is now studying under another sex offender yeah it makes me curious if there's causation correlation here did rodney affect him or did he affect rodney who is the the underlying suspicion here of whose mental capacity whose mental understanding is affecting the other person if I had to give you a guess, I would say Rodney to Roman because this, at this time, if I got my dates correct, if he went to New York in 1968, Sharon hadn't died yet. So, and Roman committed his crime after Sharon had passed away. It had been like a few years after. So mm -hmm. it could have been that way Rodney affected Roman. Granted, we don't know how much they interacted with each other, but if we had to guess, it would be that. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that at all. I just, that was just an interesting thing to bring up just because those two men's history. So. But we'll, we'll get going. Uh, so after this event happened, Rodney was placed on FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives in early 1971. This helped two children 
that saw the poster identified Ronnie since he worked at an arts camp that they went to. Ronnie was arrested and extradited back to California to await trial. However, Tali and her family had moved to Mexico and her parents refused to allow her to testify in court against her, the man who did all these brutal crimes against her. Without their key witness, the authorities did not have enough to charge Rodney with rape and attempted murder, so they charged him with child molestation instead. He was sentenced to three years in prison. Jason, I'll just stop right here. We This is just a, a staple with this podcast. Just us looking also at the judicial system, because it's frankly, that's just horrifying that this man who did these horrible things to this poor girl is only getting three years in prison. Yeah, it's it's difficult for me to comprehend the fact of the fact of good looking out by the the passerby who witnessed this eight year old girl with this man who he identified she does not belong with him, mm-hmm. and good passerby by the the two witnesses who were able to identify Rodney Alcala and point the you know law enforcement in his direction. And then, yes, you do hate to see the fact of he was never brought to justice for the crime he committed, which was rape and assault of an eight-year-old girl. Understandably so. As as a parent, I would not want my child to undergo continued trauma that she has already faced by standing in a a long, drawn-out process, which is the court system to stand in in the exact same room just feet apart from her attacker you would hate to make your child go through that and in you hate again you hate the fact that your child's attacker is not being brought the due diligence that he so rightfully deserves but at the same time it is disgusting to me that child molestation is only a 3 year offense yeah, that that kind of jumped up at me too. That that's all he got was three years for molesting a child, especially an eight year old. I don't know. And what makes me question too is, without her, you would still think they had enough evidence because they found her in his apartment. Her blood was in his apartment, and all the evidence. I just I don't know. It's just you would think they would have more than just that. Yeah, you know, without a doubt, this child is beaten. You know, without a doubt, this child is raped. And, you know, without a doubt, this child was found in Rodney Alcala's apartment. And as a matter of fact, he flees from California to New York, obviously trying to hide away from authorities. And you're just going to charge him with child molestation, not for the rape and assault of an eight-year-old girl? That's yeah, that's over my head. Well, here's the better thing, Jason. I guess, and I'm doing quotation marks as we can't see each other. Ronnie would only serve 17 months in jail for that three year sentence, too, because he made parole. Oh, because that makes just you know perfect sense, right? Yeah, and to add icing on top of that, months after he got out of prison, he actually assaulted a 13 year old by offering her a ride to school. So, this man has raped and beaten an eight-year-old girl and then continued on to essentially do the exact same thing two months after he gets out of jail on parole. 
And on top of that, during this time, whenever he was wanted by authorities, he was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And this man, after the second offense, is not put behind bars for the rest of his life. You want to guess how long he was uh, sentenced for after this second incident? I'm going to have to imagine he only served, as you said, I believe it was 17 months. I imagine it's somewhere in that time frame. Two years. Yep. Not not too far off. Yep. Yeah, so he only got two years for that offense. It was not long after he was released on parole for the second time, so he didn't even serve out the full two years. His parole officer made an unusual move by allowing him to travel to New York to visit family, which was, according to him, he was visiting family, which is very odd because, you know, most people that are released from prison, they're not allowed to leave state lines, leave state lines. Yeah, that's that's anomalous behavior in its own. And don't get me wrong. I understand that California is a very large state that more than likely the parole officer had potentially thousands of individuals under him. Good point. But to to allow this individual ha- who has done such heinous acts, namely because they are against children. But to not only have parole, but to also leave the state is is shocking to me that this man would allow such actions to take place. Yeah, it's it's over my head. Obviously, I'm not an expert in the judicial system. You would just think, though, that they would want to keep him within at least a proximity to at least have him under somewhat control because... You see there, his first instance, he releases after 17 months. Not even two months later, he commits another crime similar to that one. You would think that instead of letting him leave, they would try to keep him close by so he doesn't do it again. When he leaves state, what are you going to do then? Yeah, you have no surveillance. You have no control of his actions anymore. And as you stated, he committed his second offense two months after he got out of prison. You'd think you'd want to do your due diligence and ensure by keeping tabs on this individual that he is able to reassimilate into a society, not just let him go free. You would you would think, and it's just unfortunate because what I'm about to tell you is because they allowed him to leave stay, uh, the state and go to New York, while he was in New York, it is believed that this is where he killed his first victim, it was a college student named Ellen Hoover. She was the daughter of a popular nightclub owner in Hollywood, New York, as well as the goddaughter of two famous singers, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. As you can tell, Jason, their decision to let him leave, though, is it's is a claim later on. They have pretty solid evidence that he is the one who committed this murder. Their decision to let him leave resulted in uh, this young woman losing her life. And it's disgusting to see, right? It was oh, yeah. their decision that allowed the the bloodshed of this young woman. And we've not even covered to this extent yet, but we are talking about a serial killer here. Mm-hmm. And so I know without a doubt, it does not stop at one. Oh, no, not a chance. Not a chance. We're now we're in for a little bit of a ride, Jason. So we'll go ahead and keep that train rolling then. Once uh, Rodney was able to, uh, able to come back into the state of California, he did return to Los Angeles. It was at this time he got a job at the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter in 1978. 
And it was during this time that he had convinced many men and women that he was a professional fashion photographer. He took many pictures of his, for his portfolio as this was his way to lure in his victims as many of the pictures were sexually explicit. Many of the people he uh, photographed have not been identified to this day. One of his models, Monique Hoyt, was knocked unconscious and raped by Alcala during a session he had with her. So you see, Jason, not only is he, we'll learn on, he's a serial killer, as we've seen, obviously, with his previous crimes, he's also a serial rapist, too. We can categorize him as that, too. And not only is that such a disturbing fact, on top of him being a serial killer, but at the same time, it really raises the question that he got a job in L.A. as a typesetter. More than likely, on his resume, he has the fact that he was a clerk within the Army. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, props out to all veterans within the United States and abroad. But it does raise the question, is there no background checks at the time? Did no one care to ask the question, has he ever been incarcerated before? Because he has on two different accounts for rape and assault and child molestation of an individual who is younger than 18 years old. If I'm going to be like up front, or not up front, but like, if I were to guess, I'm going to assume there wasn't background checks because we're looking at the 70s. I don't know if that was very prominent back then. I'm going to assume there's not. And I know it's later confirmed later on that the Los Angeles Times got a lot of backlash after it was came to find out that he was a serial killer and he worked there. They got a lot of backlash for that. I'm going to assume there was no background checks because if they did, he would have never got any of this happen especially what we're about to talk about later. If they had done background checks, this man would have been anywhere near um, working at that place as he did. You would hope, right? And you would to, hope, yeah. To, to further kind of extrapolate on the fact that more than likely in the 70s, there were no background checks. It, essentially in L.A. as well, which does raise concern to me, because of how prominent, and we will continue to extrapolate on this throughout this series, but how prominent L.A. was as a praying ground for serial killers. It, it is very interesting because we've already covered one guy who was very prominent around this time, uh, around this time period as a serial killer. We got a second guy right here. There's obviously multiple other ones like Richard Ramirez, the Hillside Strangler, there's a ton of people in this area who, during this time frame, were serial killers. And it's just quite, like, what was going on? Like, we know the uh, crack cocaine uh, epidemic was going on there during this time, too. So it was just a rough time in Los Angeles in the 70s. Yeah, an incredibly difficult time. But with that being said, Are you not always cautious and curious of your common man? Do you truly understand who the person you call your friend or your coworker truly is? Are you never questioning that fact? It doesn't seem like that because what we're about to talk talk about now is something where if people had done a background check, it would have made a huge difference because in in also the same year, 1978, Rodney became a contestant on the popular game show called The Dating Game, hence how he got his nickname later on. 
still baffles people to this day how he got past uh got on the show with his past as they introduced him as a successful photographer and bachelor number one so jason you can see there if they had done a background check he obviously would have never been on this game show but they never did and this is really where he became famous yeah and also i think a little bit of rodney even applying to the the dating game is a little part a little bit of that narcissistic personality disorder rearing its head that yes i have done these heinous acts that no one should ever be proud of but i am in this if i'm speaking for rodney i am very proud of what i have done but I am also proud of the fact that I have not been caught and that nobody has any inclination that I am the person behind these crimes. And furthermore, I'm going to put my face out there essentially as a huge middle finger to authority as I am committing these crimes and you still can't catch me. I have put my face in front of national television, in front of thousands of people, and you still have no idea that I'm doing these heinous activities. Yeah, that's textbook narcissism right there. He just thinks that it doesn't matter what he does. He's not going to get caught. He's going to go on this date game, hopefully win a date. Possibly could be his next victim, and he doesn't care. He's going to do what he wants, and he thinks that he can get away with it. It's pretty scary that that's what his mindset is, and who knows, it could happen. But... Absolutely. He thinks he is 100% infallible. It's it's outrageous. It was during the day game that he was showing a little bit of his charming side, and he did manage to win the game, which won a date with the Bachelorette, which was Cheryl Bradshaw. But lucky for her, she described Rodney as creepy after the show, and due to her instincts, she refused to go on a date with Rodney, possibly saving her life. And I just want to point out, good for her. Good for her to catch those red flags, and she immediately is like, "No, I'm done. I'm not getting. I'm not going to be involved with this man anymore. I'm out of it. Good for him that he won, but I'm not going on a date with him." Yeah, and through these games, typically it is very based upon the the answers and the reactions of the individuals without knowing their face or their appearance, and is kind of the the general setting of how these game shows work. But upon her selecting Rodney as her, her winner, her victor, but meeting him face to face, she was able to, to look into his eyes and know that this is the face of something that I don't want. This is the face of some malice intent, and I need to get as far away as possible as I can. And like you said, you know, good looking out for her, because more than likely her actions saved her life. I'm going to assume they did because he is in the middle of this killing spree because we'll find out. And we already highlighted one person, but it's believed that there's more multiple people during this time frame. He is in the middle of his killing spree. More than likely, she would have been his next victim, but she probably saved her life. Yeah, and there's also potential that this feeds into the narcissism as well, that this is very methodically planned that he hoped to win the dating game, that he hoped to go on a date with this girl, and he hoped to outright kill her. So that when the tabloids, you know, are out stating that she is now a victim of murder, 
that he is still able to laugh at authority being able to see this headline and say, I have still not been caught. And I think also, too, just to play into the narcissism, which is my next point, actually, because of his rejection by Cheryl, this is what is believed to tip uh, have tipped him over the edge and made him to pursue killing even more since he was rejected. Because I know that's a big thing with narcissism. and they get rejected, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, they're more inclined to retaliate in, in some sort of way. And for Rodney, who has already shown such a lack of empathy, he is going to retaliate by continue his serial rapings and also his serial killings. Exactly, and this is what happened. About a year after he appeared on the day, uh, the day game, he did kill uh, 12-year-old Robin Samso from Huntington Beach, California. Robin went missing on June 20th, 1979, and her body was found 12 days later in a decomposing state. Friends of Robin told the police how a man asked to take pictures of them while they were on the beach. It was indeed Rodney Alcala. The police were able to get a sketch of the suspect from the girls, and Rodney's parole officer was able to identify him. Police then got a warrant to search his mother's apart- uh, house. My bad. House. They found a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, Washington. Once they found this, they headed over to the storage locker in Seattle and found earrings that belonged to Robin. They started connecting the dots, and they were confident that Rodney was their guy. No, and I just wanted to stop right there and just point out too. You could just see there as we talk about his narcissism, it really took him over the edge, and it probably is what just led to a murderous rampage. As she probably wasn't the only one this time, but she's the one that's concrete, and you can see there what he did. It's just it's horrifying, especially just to a a young girl like that. It's just horrifying. It's appalling wholeheartedly, and. You would hope, I I feel as if we're very early in the episode, but you would hope that this would be the nail on the coffin. We're at this point with two killings, I believe, and three rapes confirmed, potentially. Yep. Mm -hmm. But the, the sickening inclination that I have is that we're not quite done yet. And it's... And that is so horrifying to to be able to try and fathom because what more evidence do you need at this extent to put this man behind jail for the rest of his life? This man, on top of, as you kind of talked about, the, the narcissistic personality disorder that he has, he's keeping these trophies in Seattle, basically further submitting the fact of it's okay for me to keep these objects because I will never be caught and I will never be damned for the sins that I have committed. And, and let's not forget the pho- photographs he's been taking to of people as he's posing as, as a photographer. Who knows what came of some of those people too. So while Absolutely, just further submitting the fact of he enjoys reliving the the heinous acts he's committed and you know he's as we've kind of touched on previously these are essentially his trophies yeah and it's just horrifying to think about what it could be because who knows how many people he took pictures of it's just it's horrifying and we'll probably get into it a little bit later on i've noticed though i just want to point out too as you brought up how we only have right now two confirmed killings and three rapes 
what I've come to find out too, investigating a lot of these people we talk about, a lot of the, this information about them, about their true number, comes out after they get caught, which is kind of horrifying. Yeah, and I have to think part of that leads back into the fact that I would anticipate not knowing outright that most serial killers are narcissists. Most of them want to brag about what they believe is their accomplishments, which is murder, in fact, to where, you know, the normal individual would not think that way, to where some serial killers, not all, I believe, more of these individuals are anomalous because they don't admit to their killings. They don't want to talk to reporters. They don't want to talk to essentially anybody. They want to live the remainder of their life within a jail cell. But several of these individuals, they do want to keep talking. They want to keep embellishing their act. And in essence, making sure their legacy doesn't die. And also, I believe that part of this is the thought that potentially if I keep talking, that is keeping me alive for longer. Now, you took a word from my mouth. I think that a lot of it is because they want to be remembered. Like you said, the legacy. They just want to be remembered. And they'll do whatever they can to get that notoriety. Even no matter how horrifying it is, they're still getting recognized. It, they they don't care about anything else without a doubt well the police were actually able to arrest rodney in july in 1979 he was tried for robin's murder he was later convicted in 1980 and sentenced to death so they finally were able to sentence him to death however jason the california supreme court overturned the verdict because the jury had been informed about his sex crimes in the past leading to a biased verdict so you can already see there, he catches a break once, but they still are going to take him back to trial, so he's not like he's set free. My, my question is, how is that a biased verdict? He is already malicious with his activities. How does that create a bias intent of the jury? Oh, Jason, just wait. I want you to hold that in for a second, because wait till you'll see, you see what happens next. Because what happened was they took him back to trial in 1986, where he was again sentenced to death, but it would be overturned again by the Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001. The reason why they overturned it, because the judge would not allow a witness to back up the, the defense's claim that, who, uh, that whoever found Robin's body had been hypnotized by investigators. Uh, excuse me, what? Apparently there was a witness there that was going to back up the defense because there was a claim that was made by Rodney's team that the person who found who said they found Robin's body was hypnotized by investigators to give up. To, basically, she was hypnotized by investigators that to tell them to make up some story about this girl's body that they, that she found, and that was their key evidence to pin it on Rodney. But the main thing was that they said the investigators hypnotized this person that found this 12-year-old's body. And they had a witness saying that they could prove that this happened, but they wouldn't let it. the witness come forth and testify. So I will restate my claim. Um, excuse me, what? Yeah, exactly. That is shocking and appalling in the most forthright way I can explain. I, I am 
essentially at a loss for words of how lucky can Rodney Alcala, who is a serial rapist, for the most part of minors, and is a serial killer, is also getting the most unbelievable luck on earth. I mean, if... If if I was a gambling man and and Ronnie Alcala told me to put my life savings on black at the roulette table, I would do it. But I would hope in the aspect the same thing that I would never be exposed to Ronnie Alcala. But I'm just trying to extrapolate on what luck can you have for all these heinous acts you've committed that you're in essence getting that much closer to being able to get away with them? It, it's baffling. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It's... I, I have no words for it. I've never seen anything like that. Never heard anything like that. It's it's just way over my head. I don't, I don't even know what to say. Again, it, it is just so disgusting and appalling to think of. It, it, it truly is. Oh. Fortunately, though, for everybody in the world, Rodney would not get lucky a third time as after this overturn, the prosecution did prepare for a third trial against him. Orange County, it was during this time that Orange County investigators learned that his DNA match with semen they found at two rape murder scenes in Los Angeles. Investigators were able to do this because a new state law passed to gather DNA from inmates, so they were able to get his DNA put it in their database, and they connected them to these two crimes. The DNA they gathered was also was used to help connect four additional murders of women in the area, which were Jill Barcombe, 18, who was thought to initially have been the victim of the hillside strangling that we mentioned earlier, Georgina Whit- uh, Wickstead, who was bludgeoned to death in her Malibu apartment, apartment, which those both occurred in 1977. The other two, Charlotte Lamb and Jill Partnow, were both raped, strangled, and had their bodies left in a laundry room at their apartment. Uh, Jill was found murdered in her Bubank apartment in 1979, and Charlotte was found in 1978. So, Jason, I, don't, I haven't kept track, actually. What does that bring it to? That brings eight, it to eight. eight killings, nine rapes. So this is where everything starts getting up. Now you see, now there's more people on top of it that they could start actually trying him with to now put him away for good. Yeah, um, the way this has been going, I'm not too hopeful. (laughs) Um, I pray that surely this is enough evidence, but the way this has been going, I don't know. Uh, we turn you from an optimist to a pessimist, haven't we? Without a doubt. Um, uh, you're the, the glass is half empty. Hey, you're justified in that stance. I don't blame you at this point. But we'll see what happens as we'll move on. So the authorities had these new cases along with Robin's case to ha- to put enough evidence to finally put him away. During his time leading up to the third trial, Ronnie would publish a book he titled You, the Jury, and even filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a incidents where he fell down, as well as being refused a low-fat diet during his time in prison. Which, I'll go ahead and point that out. You can't be really making demands when you're in prison for these horrible crimes. But, 
whatever. You could go ahead and give me your thought, Jason. Um, so I have very vulgar thoughts to think of that. Um, but to, to try and keep this as PG as possible, <laughs> you are on, you are in, excuse me, prison and on trial for the rape and killing of over eight individuals, I personally don't care that you are not getting your low-fat diet. I am so sorry, but I don't feel bad about that. And I agree with you 100%. I hope you know that. Because, wow. Um, and <laughs> it, it's... I, I don't want it to come across as if I'm laughing, but it is... Uh, just you're not laughing because it's funny you're just laughing because you have no idea what's going on i have no idea what's going on and this whole case this whole trial is just so ridiculous is it not and rodney has been able to publish a book as well and i feel as if that just further cements the fact that he is a narcissist that he is able to put his thoughts on paper and say hey middle finger to these jurors these judge everybody in this court system that you have me in prison but you are not willing or not within your own power to do anything against it you've been keeping me in jail or in prison but you have not confirmly convicted me of any crime it's, i just i have no words you everything you cover i completely agree with i just i, I have no words it's unbelievable and it's just it's crazy yeah and not even to touch on the two lawsuits he's submitted against the state like dudes in prison for murder like i don't know I, whatever we'll, we'll go ahead and move on though so with these new cases that came forward the the prosecution did motion to have them conjoined with robin's case in 2003 and it would take until 2006 for the supreme california supreme court to rule in favor of this it would not occur though until 2010 that rodney would stand trial for all these murder charges and it was during this time jason you'll be in for a ride too as the jury was he decided to be his own lawyer during this trial uh you got again i i've said it three times now excuse me what <laughs> i know exactly i mean there's cases where this happened, especially, well, we haven't covered him, but Ted Bundy did this too, but Ted Bundy was also at least studied in that stuff too a little bit. This guy yeah. has no law experience at all, but yeah, he yeah. was his own lawyer. Ted Bundy spent all his free time within the judicial system studying oh, yeah. on law. Oh, yeah. I have no inclination that Rodney has been doing so. And the fact that Rodney has already been diagnosed with multi-personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder on top of potentially many other mental disabilities. And the jury in 2010 is allowing this man to stand trial and be his own lawyer. And I'm glad you mentioned that he has personality disorder too because during this time when he was acting as his own lawyer he would play the part as both interrogator and witness at the exact same times which entailed him asking himself questions and even addressing himself as mr alcala and they allowed this to go on for five hours 
Now, I, I do not want this to come across as insensitive in any right to anybody who suffers from these disabilities. But how do these jurors and this judge and all individuals standing in this courtroom not see this man as just completely insane? And uh, my thing is, obviously, they want to give a fair trial to everybody. That's what's so great about this country. But at the same time, if this goes on for five hours, someone's got to step in and stop it. Yeah, and, and the judge is 100% within his right to do so. Oh, he definitely is. And I'm surprised he did it. It's kind of, I don't know. But he did tell jurors during that during the time that Robin was kidnapped, he was working at Knott's Berry Farm, which is a theme park in Park, California. And he was working as a photographer. He even tried to claim that the earrings that were Robin's found in his storage locker were actually his. And he used his appearance on the day game to prove this, but to no avail. So I know there was, I didn't mention this, but there was one contestant that talked about how he did wear earrings while on the day game show, which was pretty abnormal at the time. But it's this little girl's earrings. They were able to prove that. I don't know why he's trying to do this now. Maybe he didn't know that they knew this, but it's just, I don't know. Yeah, he's trying to find any any rhyme or reason to provide evidence that might disprove anything that they have coming against him. But like you said, it's, it's understandable during the time frame whenever he was on the dating game in the seventies for a man to have earrings. That was definitely something that would be noted at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's you would think, but who knows? And Jason, I just want to bring this up too. His defense for the other murders, he just said he couldn't remember them. That was his only defense against them. And that's all he had to say. And he was probably hoping that that was enough for him to get away with that. And it's also in a bizarre move to finish his closing arguments. He decided to play a song called Alice Restaurant, in which the protagonist of the song tells us his psychiatrist he wants to kill. And I don't know anything that's more damning than that, but that's just me. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think in what indignation that that song would help to prove his innocence. Doesn't make any sense, and you would think that if anything, it just proves him guilty even more. But what do I know? And it's I don't know. It's this whole thing's just throwing me through a tail, um, tailwind or whatever that saying is called. It's just I don't know. I don't even know what to think anymore. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in the exact same boat as you. All right, good. Although we're on the same page. Fortunately, the jury only took them less than two days to deliberate, and they found him guilty of all five murders that he was charged for. During his sentencing, a surprise witness, Tali Shapiro, his first ever victim in terms of she was raped and attempted to murder him, uh, stood there as justice for all the women that Rodney had killed. In March 2010, Rodney was sentenced to death for the third and final time. After his conviction, both Huntington Beach and New York City police released 120 photos of Alcala, of women that Alcala had taken of, including children, and to help identify them, with an additional 900 other photos not released due to how sexually explicit they were. And that's why I wanted to bring that up too and just stop right there. You got to think there's probably more than these eight that we've counted so far. 
Yeah, you would you would have to imagine, right? With so many photos being taken, more than likely that number is at least double, if not astronomically larger. Oh yeah, well we could count out. Twenty one women did come forth and identify themselves, while six families also came forward to identify loved ones who had disappeared. So we could throw in six additional people on top of that, but that's only twenty seven out of the hundred twenty they showed. Mm-hmm. who knows what that like you said that number can be astronomical it's who, only he knows how truly what the number is and it could be very very massive well honestly hunter i for the most part we we agree a lot in this show but i honestly have to disagree with you in that aspect is the fact that i honestly don't think he has any idea how many women he has raped and assaulted good point he did make a defense that he had he couldn't remember them so maybe he didn't remember any of those too mm-hmm. so good point i didn't think about that only one so far has been connected to him though it was christine uh thornton her photo was recognized by a family member as her case went cold after her body was found in wyoming in 1982 he was later indicted in 2001 by a manhattan grand jury for the murders of Ellen Hoover, who we had mentioned earlier, as well as another woman named Cornelia Crilly. She was a flight attendant who was murdered in 1971. So you can chalk up two more people on top of that, as we already talked about Ellen Hoover. So what does that bring us to? Ten confirmed, or is that... Uh, on, on top of the photos, yeah, we, originally we, it was yeah. 14, and if we include those two as separate individuals, that brings it to 16. Yeah, 16, yeah. The six will count the six, too. So you're looking at 16 people now. And this all occurred throughout the 90s and even the 80s, too. So it's, it's pretty wild. He was taken to New York to stay in trial in June 2001, uh, 2011, my bad, and pled not guilty. But he changed it, t- changed his plea to guilty to return to California to fight his death conviction. He was given an extra 25 years to life for these crimes in New York. He was also charged with murders in other states like Washington, Wyoming, the one for Christine Thornton, as well as San Francisco. But we don't know what happened. What would happen with those? Because Rodney would pass away on July 24, 2021, not too long ago of natural causes at a hospital in Kings County, California, while he was still on death row. He was 77 years old. True number of all-cause victims, well, we got about 16, could possibly even more as he was tried for those other ones, but we'll never truly know with an investigator in Wyoming, his name was Jeff Sheeman, saying there are probably a ton more victims that we've never even known. Jason, you got any more thoughts about this? Oh, man, we have covered so much information, and I am still mind-boggled on how lucky Rodney Alcala has been throughout his lifetime. And the fact of this man did not pass away until last year, that this monster has been alive for almost our entire lifetime, Hunter. Oh, yeah. He, and but was not even a year ago not even not a year, a year ago. ago and 16 confirmed unconfirmed killings 17 confirmed unconfirmed rapes and as we've talked about p- 
potentially thousands, not even thousands, I would have to imagine potentially hundreds of others who have not been able to be brought to light, been able to be brought to justice of being a victim to Rodney Alcala. And it just, as I've stated, it is just so mind-boggling to think that he has been able to get away with so much during his lifetime. It truly is astounding, and it's just, honestly, it's heartbreaking to see all this happen. While the ones he got tried for, at least their families got a sense of justice carried out for that, who knows the other victims, if whoever, how many there are, no one knows about them, and it, that's just so disheartening to me, and it's just unfathomable, and I don't know, it. It's just crazy, especially the going through three different trial, trials to get to this point. Not to mention, let's bring back up the two trials before this with Talia Shapiro and also what happened with the girl that two months after he got released. And yet it took until 2010 before he finally got justice. It's, um, it's just crazy. Yeah, and, and I just, I, I don't feel as if I'm able to definitively state that he is an organized or organized killer because, yes, he is mainly preying upon women of their ethnicity, I don't know, of their complete age reign, I don't know. For the most part, I know he does prefer to prey upon younger women, but his method of killing them is his modus operandi seems to change up. He does not have a 100% established MO. And it, it, it feels more of the fact of he, his lust is driving him to do these actions, not the killing itself, which I could be wholeheartedly wrong, mm -hmm. but I feel as if the killing is an afterthought, is, is not his first intent as much as the lust that is driving him to do so but with that being said i would hang more on the aspect of he is a disorganized killer versus an organized killer but i could not outrightly state that he is one or the other yeah he, his is a hard case to determine that i just he, like you said he's his lust he's a sexual sadist honestly and it, they never really, in my research, disclosed how he did kill these women. I know with Tali, he did beat her. And doesn't ever say anything about him, really, except for like a couple instances where he strangled. I guess mm -hmm. if you had to have a bonus apparendi, maybe him strangling, and that's how he killed them. Mm -hmm. But we don't truly know. But I would have to agree with you. He does seem more of a disorganized killer than organized. Yeah. So. Well, Jason, I'll let you close this out. That's everything I got, unless you got anything else you want to add. But if not, I'll let you close this out. Thank you for taking, uh, getting on this rather unusual journey looking into the life of Rodrigo Jaquez Alcala, or as we will know, know him as, the dating game killer. Yeah, definitely. This, uh, th this has definitely been a trip. This has potentially been one of the most mind-boggling instances we have covered in this series thus far. But with that being said, thank you, Hunter, and thank you for turning in to the Rodney Alcala, a.k.a. the Dating Game Killer episode of Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. 
If you like this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As a disclaimer, no cereal was harmed in the making of this episode. We hope to see you next time.